Uh, good morning, church. Uh, today we are on day three of Holy Week in terms of when we look at the uh, scriptures in our Bible. Uh, we have the account in the Gospels of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem on what's called Holy Week, the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus's life before his crucifixion and his death and his burial and his resurrection. What I hope you're catching on to by now in this series is that, is that Jesus is wrapping up up his whole three-year ministry uh, with some really serious indictments uh, of the Jewish religious leadership. He's, he's pointing the finger right at them. He's pointing the finger at these guys and talking about the temple and the rabbinic system. Uh, uh, and that's been what we've talked about on the last two Sundays for day one and day two of Holy Week. And now we're on day three. Day three is comprised of a huge amount of text, a huge amount of text in your scriptures. A lot happened on this day during Holy Week. There was a lot of dialogue. You'll see a lot of the, if you open up a physical Bible, you will see a lot of the red letters of Jesus, meaning this is him speaking. And um, we're going to pick it up in, uh, we're going to begin today in Matthew chapter 23. So if you want to turn to Matthew 23 in your Bible or in your device, um, like I said, it's a lot. So we're covering Matthew chapter 23, 24, 25, and 26. So we can't deal with all of that, uh, so we're just going to deal with the highlights to kind of get the main theme of what is going on across that um, part of the scriptures. And so as we do that, there are going to be some implications that I want us to think about as we're living in this season of Lent. All right, so beginning in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So the question is, what in this first part of the text, what exactly is Jesus' problem here with the Pharisees? Are they doing everything wrong? No, uh, he's not rejecting their system. God gave them the system that they're using. What he's rejecting here is how they are leveraging uh, the priestly system, the rabbinical leadership system, to mistreat people. And that's the problem. So if you're not careful here and you just read it uh, on the surface, you might think that Jesus is rejecting the Jewish system and their whole way of life. But the answer is no, of course not. Jesus is Jewish. In case you, I don't know how many of you knew that or not, but he's Jewish, and he does very Jewish things all the time. So he's not rejecting their system. He's rejecting their notion that the system gives them permission to treat people poorly. That's his issue here. In other words, don't give people heavy loads unless you're prepared to join them in the lifting, right? All right, continuing on, verse uh, 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. And you can look up uh, what phylacteries are, are on your own. That's just a, well, I'm not even going to go into it. Look it up. It's a little thing where they tie the law to um, their forehead or part of their body so they can literally carry it around. It's based on Deuteronomy chapter 6, but you can look that up, Google that. Um, the point here is that the Pharisees wanted to follow the rules with their whole being, like with all of who they, they were, which sounds great. But the problem for them is that they've moved beyond that and they've made it into a show. 
Um, they made it into a show so that you think that they are loving God well. But here's the deal. It doesn't matter if you think I'm loving God well. What matters is if I'm loving God well, and only God knows that. So what's funny when you think about it is if in fact you are loving God well, people will probably notice that and go, what's up with, what's up with that guy? What's up with that gal? Why is she doing that? Why is she living that way? In other words, if you are loving God well, they're going to notice. But there's a difference between that and doing things to be noticed. Right? It's in the desire to get noticed that they go astray. They are putting on a show. Uh, but for the wrong audience. They should be trying to show God that they love Him, but they're putting on a show to make you think they're loving God. Okay, so that's the first part of what I want to cover today. The next part, we're going to jump into the next part of day three during Holy Week, and in the next part, we're going to examine what are called the seven woes. So you're going to flip over, you're going to flip over starting in verse 13. You should have a section in your scriptures titled the seven woes or something like that. Um, Really, this whole section is worth a whole other series that maybe we'll do another time. But right now, I just want to summarize it for you. And then I'll tie it back into what we've just covered with the Pharisees. So starting in Matthew uh, 23, verses 13 through 14, we get to the first woe. And I'm going, to, I'm going to paraphrase some of these just to make it as simple to understand as possible. But the first one basically says this. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others in either. Ouch! The second one is in verse 15. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Whoa! Okay, so that if you're standing there and he's preaching this to you, this is getting really awkward if you're a disciple of Jesus and he's just laying in. He's saying this to them, but all the crowds too. So, by the way, Jesus is not afraid to toe the line, uh, to toe the line with bullies, basically. So, man, he is not pulling any punches, right? I mean, if he's not careful, they're going to kill him. You see what I did there? I mean, like, seriously, they're going to kill him. And this is part of the reason as he travels throughout Holy Week, he just keeps bringing these indictments against the spiritual leadership of Israel. And it is one of the reasons, if not the prime reason, that he ends up being killed by them. Woe number three starts in verse 16 through 21. It says, you swear by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, but it's the temple that makes the gold sacred and the altar that makes the gift sacred. So basically, if you read that whole section, he's confronting them on what they think are loopholes in the law. If you take an oath, you have to fulfill it. And they're like, well, if I swear by the temple, I can get out of my oath. But if I swear by the gold in the temple, then I'm obligated. And Jesus is like, what in the world makes the gold sacred in the first place? Is it the gold itself or is it the temple that it sits in? This is stupid is what he's saying. Is it the sacrifice that's holy or is it the altar that the sacrifice sits on that makes the sacrifice holy? And he's like, don't be ridiculous. It's a both and. Furthermore, Jesus has already said in Matthew 5, if you flip back to the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, hey, just let your, let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? Which is, that's the bigger point, right? Next one, the fourth woe, starts in verses 23 and it goes to verse 24 too. He says, basically, you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, which are justice and mercy and faith. He's basically like, yeah, you should tithe. You should tithe, yes, and don't neglect it. But don't neglect the more important things either. 
you should tithe. But it's all that tithe is supposed to go and help people, which is, I mean, uh, just a side note here. It's we are giving 16% of your tithes and offerings to people and, and organizations outside of these walls, 16%. So we are more than tithing on the tithe that, that comes in to put it where it's supposed to be for justice and mercy and faith. And that's Jesus's point. That's Jesus's point. You should tithe, but don't neglect the important things. We should tithe. You never give that up. But then you also take care of others. And out of the tithe, you use that to take care of others as well. Okay? It's the tithe is not, it's not about you appeasing God or making everything all right between you and him. It's not about following rules. The rule, the rule isn't bad that you should tithe, but you're misusing the rule to try to gain God's favor and approval rather than what you should be doing with it, which is helping people. Woe number five and six. I want to combine these into one. This is uh, verses 25 through 27. Basically, he says, you care about outside appearances. But inside, you're full of greed, selfish indulgence, hypocrisy, and wickedness. So it's so interesting during Lent when you work on giving up some type of indulgence in your life and you lay down whatever it is or if it's many things. But when you become, when you do that, when you actually lay something down in Lent, like you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast from this or I'm going to bring a new practice into my life and, and try to live it out during Lent, either way, you become more and more aware of other indulgences as you lay one thing down and you become successful with that then you're like oh but i'm noticing these other things in my life all of a sudden i realize wow i'm i'm really a selfish person um that's the way it has been for me and if i'm going to fully experience the power of resurrection in my life i gotta i got some work to do in terms of laying down even more of my indulgences and selfishness and that's why we're here in our fourth year of practicing Lent, uh, practicing Lent here at West Seattle Christian Church, because each time we do this, we are discovering these areas in our life that God wants to wash clean and make new, and it's really good. It's really good. So, what's the underlying thing here in, in the accusation that Jesus levels at the Pharisees about greed and indulgence and hypocrisy and wickedness? He's calling out the fact that they have their own agenda for their life. They have their own agenda. And that's kind of that kind of actually encapsulates what we talked about from from day two and day one on the last uh, two sermons about this. But he's calling out the fact that they have their own agenda for their life, and that's that's what we're doing at Lent. We're calling out the fact that we do have our own agendas for life. We come face to face with those agendas, and God's saying to these guys, "You have your own agenda for how you think things are supposed to go, and it's totally self-serving." And no matter how well you think it's going and how much influence and power you think you own, that kind of agenda will always end in ruin, is what he tells them. Then Matthew uh, uh, 23 verses 29 uh, through 32 is the last one. He says, you go on about how you would never have done what your ancestors did, but you're just as guilty about, uh, about it. Uh, you're just as guilty as them and their actions and your actions show that, that you're that guilty. So you can go and read that, and I just summarized it for you. But basically, Jesus gives this rolling uh, indictment, indictment after an indictment of how they think their agenda is lined up with God's agenda. They think they're doing what God's will is, and he says, you're not. You're not even close. Then Jesus goes into probably the most confusing conversation in the whole of scriptures, honestly. It's about the end times, and we'll cover that in another series at some point. But really, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 
when you look at those, historically in the church, they are Advent scriptures because Advent is not only about Jesus coming as an infant, but it's also about Jesus coming again at the, at the, when he returns at the end of the age. And so those sections, they might seem a little confusing. You can read those. I, I encourage you to read them on your own um, and maybe have some discussion with your kinfolk group about it or another person in the church about it. But one thing that I do want to say that is very clear in that next section in, in Matthew 24 and 25 uh, is when G Jesus basically says in that section, there will be a reckoning, and he's talking still to these Pharisees, there will be a reckoning for the leadership of this country of Israel. And it's going to pay a price for the mistakes that they're making. And when it happens, he's saying to everyone, when that price starts to be paid, he's like, you need to run for the hills. You need to head to the hills. It is going to be bad. Run for your lives. Okay. And that's the difficult thing about leadership. These are the spiritual leaders of this people group. And uh, that's the difficult thing about it. While everyone loves the idea of influence, I think a lot of people love the idea of influence, right? Being a leader. But there's a price you pay when you derail from God's agenda. And it's catastrophic. And it's not just catastrophic to you. It's bad for everyone else that you influence. So what's going on here is the Pharisees are saying, we think the world works this way and that we are following God's agenda, but it's really our agenda. And Jesus comes along and says, no, uh-uh, no. There's only, there's only one way this all ends. And the way it ends is God wins because he's in control and it's going to happen his way. Okay, well, keep your finger in the scriptures there. You're going to turn to... Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to pick it up again uh, with a story about one particular individual. I'm going to fast forward to this one character here in the story. Again, this all happens on the third day of Holy Week, and we're going to see the struggle of this person's life as they struggle with their own agenda. Uh, and the person I'm talking about is one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot. So I want you to read that whole chapter. It's a very long chapter. But you have the time. <laughs> and so um, read the whole chapter. Get into it a little bit. And um, that name Iscariot is interesting. It's, a, it's a, uh, like a professional name they've given him. Iscariot um, was a zealot title. And so a zealot was someone who expected the Messiah, the Messiah to come. And when they came, they expected the Messiah, the Savior, to be the, one, the anointed one who would win a, a military victory by force and might and violence, okay? And so Judas, he is, he is um, tagged onto the disciples here as called, but he has certain expectations, okay? He's got a certain way of looking at everything, and that's why he's called Judas Iscariot. So he basically does exactly the same thing with his agenda that the Pharisees were doing. He's working his own agenda for the kingdom that he thinks is coming. And Jesus says, yeah, my kingdom, my kingdom is coming, but it's going to manifest itself in a different way. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come into its own and really become a reality when I lay down my life. And that's where it got really confusing for Judas. It's once Judas figures that out, he is basically, he's overwhelmed and he's ruined. And we know what he does if you read the story. He betrays Jesus. He gives him up. The, the, the leaders of the, of the temple give him 30 pieces of silver. And then it ruins him even further as he thinks about what, it, what Jesus is actually doing. He doesn't know what to do. He can't reconcile the kingdom agenda of Jesus and the agenda he had for how he thought the kingdom should come into, into being. 
And so he ends up throwing the money back in the temple and he hangs himself because he can't reconcile what he's done. In other words, there was already an agenda and he didn't realize what it was. And after the Last Supper and when Jesus is in the garden, Judas comes, there's this really interesting part in uh, Matthew 26. Jesus and his companions are there and you know Ju Judas betrays him with a kiss and then it says one of Jesus's companions takes out a sword, slices off the ear of the, of the servant of the high priest and we get this little snippet of conversation uh, in verse 52 where Jesus says uh, says to the person who cut the sword off uh, cut the ear off of um, off of the servant of the high priest he says put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels that's a whole lot of angels let's just put say that that's a whole lot of angels okay and then Jesus says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so in some versions of the scripture right there, that last line says, it must happen this way. In other words, they are all still thinking Jesus is going to do something different. And he's no, he, he says, no, my kingdom is, is, looks a certain way. And the way it's going to come into being is if, if I do this certain thing, I'm going to give myself up. I'm going to give my life away. And I'm, I'm going to lay it down uh, for God's agenda. So there's only one plan. There's only one ending. There's one agenda. And it has to happen a certain way. And God's got it. He's in control. And this is where I want to lead us to when we look at this whole, this whole day of what's going on in Jesus' life on this third day of Holy Week. The question is, are you and I going to trust him enough to be faithful, even when it looks bleak? And how, how real does that get right now with what's going on our, in our world with the coronavirus and people losing their jobs and all of that kind of stuff? Are we going to be faithful as the church? Are we going to trust him and his story and lay down the things in our life that need to be laid down so that we can be like Jesus and do the things he did for the reasons that, we did him, that he did them? Or are we going to push our own agenda? Are we going to let God be in control? And, and work on staying faithful to him and his kingdom? Or are we going to take it into our own hands and our own means and try and do what we think is right uh, and follow the same path as uh, the Pharisees? Uh, this is the beauty of Lent. This is the beautiful thing about Lent. It's a season where we get to practice letting our agendas die so that resurrection can be even more powerful in our lives today. It's an everyday thing where we lay things down and new things come to life. And we're going to move toward communion now. And we take communion every week as a church. And if you're new with us, we practice it, what we call, we practice what we call an open table, which just means if you believe in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, then this, this time is for you. And so you might want to pause right now and go get a, a piece of bread and some juice. If you don't have those things, it's perfect, you know, because we're, it's hard to get out and get the things that we need right now. We have a lot of solidarity with other people in the world who, who um, can't meet for church. And when they do take communion, it might have to be just a cracker and a drink of water instead of um, unleavened bread and juice and that kind of thing. Um, 
But this type of communion is for you. And if you're searching right now, if you're new with us and you're watching this, if you've got questions about giving your life to Jesus and following him, or you want to know about baptism or you want to get baptized, just email me, call the church, and I will get a hold of you. Um, but if we were all together in our worship center right now, we would all come forward to a table and we would take some bread and some juice or some wine and then we'd all hold that together uh, until we've um, been directed to take it together at the same time. So I encourage you, like, um, if you're meeting with your kinfolk group this week and you want to do communion, you could all get that ready and prepare about it and talk about it in advance and try to do that together where you all um, take communion together but in your own homes. Um, but since we're doing this online, and, and Mark Reinhardt, he's, he's going to bring our meditation in a minute or two. So you can pause this and go get uh, the elements if you have them. And by the way, we have um, individual uh, uh, sanitized uh, communion cups. And if you would like us to, to mail some to you, if we're able to do that, please let us know. Call the church, email the church at hello at westseattlechristian.church. And I will do my best to get those mailed to you. We'll use gloves and we put them in packets and sanitize everything and then mail it off. Um, of course, then you're going to have to like probably wipe down the box that it comes in after the mail carrier handles it and all that kind of stuff. But um, we want to do our best to give you what you need to, to practice communion um, and uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, basically, I want to give you some time to prepare your heart. Um, and your mind for meditation and prayer to remember what Jesus has done for you. Um, uh, before Mark comes on, though, I want to leave you with just a few implications. Well, basically just one, one big implication based on everything that we talked about today. And that's that. There is just one kingdom. There is just one kingdom and one agenda for that kingdom. And it's, it's good news. It's the good news of Jesus. And it's modeled by the life Jesus lived and the death he died, the sacrifice that he made. Judas and the Pharisees, they pushed their own agenda because they could not bring themselves to give up uh, what they thought the kingdom looked like. They wanted a kingdom fashioned by their own making. The trouble is that God had already established his kingdom. He, he said, this is what it's going to look like. Jesus was working to make that a reality. They had a wrong definition of what Jesus' kingdom was all about. So the question for us is the same it was for them. Do we have the right definition of the kingdom? And if we don't, we'll end up following our own agendas uh, down the wrong path of woes, if you will. We won't be able to lay things down so that new things can be resurrected in us and new life can be, can be made um, to, to grow within us. And our, I get it. Like our agendas, when I think about my life, our agendas are driven by our insecurities. They are driven by our fears. They are driven by false beliefs that allow us to think more highly of ourselves. And so we get caught in this trap where we think we know what's best. And that's not to say we aren't given brains where we have wisdom that God has given us, but we can get trapped in, a, in, in our own agenda. And our agendas, very truthfully, they die hard. They die hard. So my invitation to you is to consider this. Lent is an opportunity to let our agendas die so that resurrection can take its fullest place in our hearts. Its fullest place in our hearts. The question is, can I trust God and let him be in control? Can I trust him and let him be in control? Do I trust him enough to work out the details? And let me tell you something that I firmly believe. He has got this whatever it is you're thinking about. He's got it. He doesn't want you to worry about it. 
and he's in control. May you trust him.